episode 415 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express today do not reflect those of our clients, our firms, our institutions, our families, our children, or our pets, maybe not even ours three weeks from today. Joining me for the news roundup, Nate Jones, co-founder of Culper Partners, formerly with Justice and the National Security Council, Maury Shank, our London-based lawyer and technologist, Sultan Meiji, scholar in the Cyber Policy Initiative at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host and chief provocateur for today's program. Nate, you know, I used to really get mileage out of saying that the Russians once told me, we can always tell when it's an American cyber attack because it looks <laughs> like it was written by a bunch of lawyers. But now they won't be able to tell whether it's us or the Israelis. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. So Iran has been under quite a persistent cyber campaign that's being waged against them the last several months and frankly years. And this latest one forced one of their largest steel manufacturers to halt production for some time and reportedly affected some other steel companies inside Iran that didn't have to stop operations, but have disclosed that they were also impacted. The claim of responsibility goes to an anonymous hacking group, but obviously by their public message as part of that claim of responsibility and the political tone of that. And, you know, it, it does seem to indicate that they're, if not just sympathetic with Israel, that they're, they may actually be aligned with them. Although there has been, as far as I know, no formal attribution to Israel, the nation state at this time. No, the closest thing we get to it, everybody is saying it, of course, but yeah. the closest thing we get to it is that the Israeli defense ministry went after some reporters for, not for breaching national security when they talked about these attacks, but for for breaching national ambiguity, which I, you know, the, the <laughs> new policy, <laughs> they, they, they basically say, you can joke about it, but you can't actually say, yeah, that was us. You kind of have to leave it ambiguous. <laughs> yeah. A power I always wanted when I was in government. Uh, <laughs> yes. That would have been nice, huh? Um but yeah, so I think obviously Israel is likely to be responsible for this. They're trying to put some distance between themselves by either encouraging or using this so-called non-state actor to engage in this activity. And their problem is, you know, you can't always get away with that. It doesn't always pass the public smell test. And Iran has a halfway decent intelligence service. And they may be able to put these pieces together at the end of the day. Don't you think that it, it is a giveaway when the YouTube of the whole Sparking explosion of uh, lava coming out of the thing is being run. The first screen says, oh, we were very careful to send these guys WhatsApp messages to tell them to get out of the way and nobody was hurt. Uh, and, you know, it was it was written by lawyers, but, you know, non-American yeah. lawyers. They yeah. were Israeli lawyers. And it does feel like they kind of want people to know it was them but also maintain this facade of yeah. non-responsibility that they can hold up when they're talking to other governments and say, oh, hey, it was, might not have been us. We didn't claim responsibility for this wink, wink, nod, nod. Don't you think that it's also that what's going on here is this is the first really make stuff blow up kind of cyber attack we've seen in a tense nation on nation situation. And don't you think that part of what they were doing with all this emphasis about how they phoned ahead and made sure nothing bad happened is 
them saying to the Iranians, this is a limit that we observe because we want you to observe it too. And if you don't, don't count on us doing this forever. I think that's part of it for sure. But I do think one of the challenges we have in the West is obviously to separate the aims for which these things are being used and the precedents that are being set with these activities. And I think, you know, okay, great. They called ahead and nobody died. But, you know, I think that's a dangerous game to be playing, right? When you're ultimately blowing things up, it can have unexpected reactions and chain reactions that can lead to real harm to people. We certainly saw that not Petya, where, you know, the yep. ramifications were pretty significant, right? Well, that was, that was um, and, the Russians. They don't, they don't care, right? <laughs> no, but I do think, you know, Israel should care. And that's part of my point, yeah. right? Is that, you know, you want to be able to, at the end of the day, hold these governments like Iran, like Russia, to certain standards in cyberspace. And if you're sitting there flouting them from time to time when it's convenient for you, it becomes a lot harder to do that. And it becomes a lot harder to gain, you know, broader international support for your efforts to discourage those things. And so I think, it is important to kind of look at this these activities objectively and really think about whether or not we want governments engaging in this sort of activity. And to me, this you know this comes pretty close, if not actually crossing that line. So I applaud it, but uh, <laughs> I, I do think there is the ends really now the a prize for the for the cyber force that is most lawyer whipped because <laughs> I don't think cyber command and NSA qualifies anymore and. Exhibit A is not just we phoned ahead to make sure nobody got hurt, but they did an earlier one where they cut off gas at gas stations uh, and they put up an electronic message that said, hey, having trouble getting gas? Here's the Ayatollah's number. Just give him a call. (laughs) It it was hilarious uh, and well-deserved. But before that, it turns out, they actually called up a bunch of emergency services and said, gas up your ambulance because you're going to have trouble getting gas. You know. That is lawyer whipped. (laughs) (laughs) But I think it also conveniently plays into some of their public messaging around the attacks, right? Um, So I think it is a little bit convenient for them and may actually have substantive goals or substantive aims that they've had behind putting that in as opposed to just legal. But I take your point. All right, let's go on to Chinese disinformation, which, of course, is also obvious, but not acknowledged, not even ambiguously. Sultan, what are the Chinese up to now, and why does it matter? Well, first off, I don't think it's new. I just think we're talking about it. But it is a strategic set of activities the Chinese government has done on social media in a variety of ways to try to cause noise and drama here in the United States and also in Canada about investments in rare earth mining and manufacturing. So right now, the Chinese absolutely control the rare earth infrastructure globally. There is a tremendous amount of activity here in the United States as part of these broader supply chain discussions to make that less of a weakness for us and for the rest of the democracies that actually care about things like freedom and capitalism and all the other good stuff. And for the last two years, they've released, I think it's two and a half years now, they've released a a bunch of information talking about, I believe it's called Dragon Bridge and and a couple of other programs that are specifically designed to weaken support for that and to cause drama for the companies that are actually doing this, including a couple of American companies, a Canadian company and, and an Australian company. Because the Chinese understand that if all of a sudden the West doesn't rely on them for rare earth materials, which, by the way, goes into chips and phones and batteries. 
batteries, those are kind of the big pieces, it will cause significant issues to their economy in a place where, you know, I think all of us realize that 8% GDP for a decade might have been, you know, fiction, and but now it's definitely fiction, even if it's uh, close to a positive number for the next few years. Yeah. So, Maury, the Chinese have been great at, well, or at least very aggressive about having a 50 cents army that will say, oh, isn't our government wonderful? And why don't you shut up about things that the government wants you to shut up about? Is this just the same thing exported or is there something more going on here? I think it's kind of the same thing. Sultan did a good job of summarizing what's happened. And one word he used was interesting to me, strategic, because I found myself thinking, is this a strategic initiative or is this just tactical throw dirt in the air that they're doing everywhere and may not be decided at a senior level? They just may have a practice of doing this at lower levels of government to create mess on everything. That's kind of what I think is going on. So that made sense when they were talking about whether the Wuhan lab had leaked the virus, where they're just being defensive and throwing up a lot of dirt. This one feels like it's trying to get us not to do something by influencing citizens to say, oh, there's a big environmental problem here and you need to stop processing rare earths. My rough guide to rare earths is you can find them anywhere. The trick is it's very capital intensive to separate them out. And so it's not like China has more rare earth deposits. It's just that they've been willing to pay for the plants that develop it. And there is a lot of dirt that has to be processed, which creates some issues. And they are trying to, they're following in what looks to me like a Russian example, when the Russians tried to stop fracking by campaigning in the US as though they were environmentalists. Yeah. I, I think I that's a good pushback. Go ahead, Sultan. Uh, no, please. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll follow uh, up and be contrarian. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's a good pushback. I mean, I think one of the hard things for us to try to do, and it may be impossible, is figure out where the Chinese have strategic objectives and where they're just throwing dirt in the air. And I'm sure they don't want us to know that. And it's a difficult information environment as a result. Yeah. I, well, more you just kind of made the point I was going to, which is, you know, I don't think the line is cut and dried between tactical systematized automations they have where they're just trying to throw crap in the air and especially with elections coming up and other things. But also, you know, they clearly have some strategic interest here, right? If all of a sudden, you know, 78 percent of U.S. rare earth imports over the last rare earth use was Chinese imports over the last what six years or seven years or something like that. And this is a huge thing for them. And if all of a sudden that poll into our infrastructure goes away, they might not have enough use for that, which after this massive capital investment, Stuart, to your point, is a big deal. But I think it is in their strategic interest for there to be division and conflict over this. And by making it an environmental issue, which is really what a lot of these activities are, it now becomes more of an issue for us on the political side. So if there are researchers and students listening to this, even journalists, one of the questions I would have that is eminently answerable is how many of these fake accounts on Twitter and elsewhere are showing up on TikTok and are they getting boosted? Those are really important questions. Well, only as long as TikTok is still available in the app stores from Google and Apple in the United States. Right. Well, that will happen for a while. And I just wondered if somebody has said, hey, TikTok's too good a thing for us to waste it on this kind of a campaign, or whether the guys who control those accounts said, well, let's see if we can't get something going on TikTok. 
you know, it's really interesting. TikTok, unlike a lot of the other social media platforms, it's harder for you to gather external analytic data to look at uh, impact. Oh, really? Why would that be? I, I, I'm <laughs> sure we're all shocked to hear that, right? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, look, this strikes me as exactly what DHS and its disinformation governance board should have been thinking about instead of singing Mary Poppins songs and explaining how Democrats never do disinformation. It's only people on the right. If they had focused just on foreign disinformation, there'd still be controversy, but a lot of people would want to know what they were finding. Yep. All right. The U.S. is not taking this lying down, according to at least Chinese security researchers, it's been planting Trojan horses all over the place. Maury, I read that story and I was kind of surprised how broad the accusations were and how very shallow they were as well. Yeah, there's a real lack of specificity. It was um, the China National Computer Virus Emergency Response Center and 360, which used to be called Chihu 360, which is the big Chinese yep. uh, security company found this. And the story is that there are Trojans, which give a significant level of access that have been planted in a lot of Chinese and Russian sites. But that was about it. Yeah. Um, and I mean, we have to assume that the NSA is doing things like this, and it's probably the tip of the iceberg of what the NSA is doing. But it's hard to judge this story very much because of the limited information. I wonder if that story came out because they knew that they were going to be facing a story about a billion Chinese citizens' records having been hacked and offered for sale for the bargain price of less than 50 cents a person. In fact, I think less than five cents a person. Yeah. You know, we had a previous discussion about this, with, that it's not confirmed, but right. that what's being sold there is 23 terabytes of data on a billion Chinese citizens, supposedly stolen from the Shanghai police. It's not easy to fake 23 terabytes of data. I mean, <laughs> right. I mean, you know, there's a lot of companies that are doing synthetic data these days, but you can check um, these are ones where you ought to be able to check whether some of these people really exist. Oh, yeah. And so I'm inclined to think there's maybe some reality to this story. Obviously, the Office of Personnel Management is not the only entity in the world that's susceptible to big hacks. And it would be pretty embarrassing for the Shanghai police to have an even bigger problem. Yeah. Maybe OPM should set up a searchable database. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. <laughs> All right. So this is really interesting. We're st still talking about what the NSA does. Nate, I looked at this story and it looked to me as though for the first time I've ever seen it, the National Security Agency got the Justice Department to file an antitrust case to block a merger just because it wanted competition over one of its programs. Yeah. Apparently, they're trying to take advantage of uh, the Biden administration's propensity to take on these kinds of yes. <laughs> mergers and acquisitions. <laughs> <For sure. laughs> um, and they found a receptive audience in the antitrust division over there. That's exactly what they've done. And it is really interesting. I mean, you know, if you read the complaint that DOJ filed, they essentially define the relevant market that booze would, uh, according to them, be a monopoly in as the, the bid on this particular NSA contract. And the case they make is not that, you know, there is no other 
entity out there that provides services similar to this. It's that it requires such specialized knowledge of signals intelligence that anybody else who's in the private sector who's out there and does this can't do it capably for the NSA. And so they argue that the market should be defined this narrowly. And if they're successful on that front, I think it is pretty clear that by acquiring this other company that Booz would have a monopoly in this market. But I suspect that Booz Allen will argue that the market should be defined more broadly. But I do think that's what this is going to come down to at the end of the day. I think it's kind of hard to win that argument given that, you know, you can't talk about a lot of this stuff. And the fact that it's classified makes it very hard for people to enter that market. It sounded yeah. as though they were making the argument that Everwatch, the other company, had kind of painstakingly assembled a whole bunch of other companies that – you know, this is not one thing that one company can do. You need a lot of skills. And they yeah. had slowly put together a bunch of competitors for booze that when they were packaged together could match what booze did and still be cleared. Um, yeah. And you almost get the sense that they were counting on this, that they were watching it and dying to get some competition because they thought that they were getting taken advantage of. And just as they think they're about to launch the competition, Booz says, oh, yeah, we're buying them. And yeah. they were just so upset that they went to the Justice Department. And as you say, wouldn't have worked probably in a Republican administration. But as this administration, any antitrust case sounds like fun. Yeah. And just to make it clear for people, as you're saying, you know, Booz is the incumbent here, right? So they're, yeah. this is basically, you know, bidding for a renewal of the contract. Somebody else comes in, as you said, and tries to compete with them and they immediately buy them up. So the optics of this for Booz are not particularly good. It does just look a little shady on its face. Yeah. Yeah. And look, you got to feel a little bad for the guys at Everwatch who this is their exit. Right. <laughs> now exactly. <it> ain't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is great. Now, their, egg, well, now their exit is put it all on black. Give it a spin. If you win the contract, <laughs> you're in good shape. If not, too bad. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Uh, you know, as somebody who lives in the VC world now that I left the government, I have to say this is a pretty great pitch for somebody else to come in and buy them. It probably a slight premium yes. over. And so yeah, yeah. I would not be at all surprised to hear that they have been bought by someone else who booze hates. And there might be an interesting chess move here for that exit to actually still go through. All right. Yeah. Carlisle, they're calling you. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. <laughs> okay. Oh, well, let's talk about artificial intelligence. Uh, I do think the, the overarching question is when will – Google AI engineers achieve a view of self because they clearly have none. But the AI stories this week were particularly um, dumb, I have yeah. to say, Sultan. Uh, uh, well, uh, uh, my view was the dumbest was the one with the about the racist robots, but I want Maury to talk a little bit about the racist policing. But what was this AI st study about robots and blocks and sexism? I, I wish we could just have a video of me reading that story in a meme format where it's like some sort of egregious outward reaction on my part. I yeah. just I, I read it and I just was like, this is so stupid. I mean, let's so let, 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 give the audience an idea what, yeah. what the story okay, is. So, I, I feel like I'm a broken record here because about once every three to six months on this podcast, there's a really stupid story about AI. And I usually say one of the following things. This one gets all three of my, you know, bad marks on AI. Number one, it's bad data. 
this is bad data and bad training. And we just see this all over the place with all of these companies that don't seem to understand that when you put crap into an AI system, crap's going to come out. If you take a seven-year-old and you tell them that murdering people is good, guess what? They're going to start murdering people. And this is the same thing. So that's number one. Number two is... Okay, but still you have to tell us what the... Reported to do, right? They had blocks with pictures of people who had self-identified their ethnicity and their gender. This is how frustrating. I went right back the right past the part of the actual story. So they built an AI that came out racist because they were telling it, put the Asian American in the brown box, put the Latino in the brown box. And not, you know, and, and say like, okay, if you do that kind of thing, guess what? It's going to turn into a racist device. And that's what's exactly has happened. So I am so shocked. I, I was, you know, what I noticed first was, yes, they asked it stupid questions. They, you had Latinos and blacks and whites yeah. and, and men and women. And then they said, pick up the homemaker block and yeah. put it in. And, and you kind of say, well, what am I supposed to do here? I, you, you don't get to say as the... Researchers seem to think the AI should have said is, I'm not going to answer the question like yeah. that. <laughs> it, it, I mean, if you want a woke AI, you have to program it to be woke, not just assume that it will be woke when you start asking it questions after you've trained it to not be. I mean, the, another example of the data they got out of it is is they asked the AI, pick the criminal box, and it selected the box with an African-American face on it at a 10% greater rate than not. And this is kind of early in its training program, right? This is just... People who don't actually understand how artificial intelligence works, not training it correctly, and then shocked when it does something terrible. And that is exactly what's happened. And to me, it gets to my single biggest challenge right now. We are not training computer scientists and people with understanding of neurological functions to build these training models. And we have a bunch of people training them who have no idea what they're doing. And then they're shocked that it does something stupid or something terrible. I'm going to offer the view that they knew exactly what they were doing and they got exactly the result they wanted to because this is giving them all the coverage that they could ask for. Because if you can say, hey, we found some racist AI, you're going to get a story in the media. Well, you're even more cynical than I am. I have I have moved past the phase of just irritated into cynicism. Just now. all right. Well, that's not a competition, but yes. Uh, <laughs> okay, Maury, not quite as dumb, but close. Was this algorithm about predicting future crime? Well, I think it gives Sultan's story a run for the money for dumbness, including because it makes us think that AI can do stuff that it can't do. So. There was an article published in Nature Human Behavior from authors who said they could predict day-to-day, week-to-week crime in thousand-foot square tiles of Chicago, violent crime and property crime. And it was sort of written as if, well, we we can figure out who's going to commit crime, sort of like Minority Report. And this isn't Minority Report. It's maybe a slight step up on predictive policing where police, the police have for years put resources where there's crime. And this is maybe a little bit better data to do that. But the authors seem to have had an agenda to prove that there were bias where police resources were being put now, a little bit like Sultan's story. So I think this is dumb because it's not very useful and it's overblown. And it tells us that AI seems to want to suggest that AI can do things that it can't. 
Yeah. Plus, I think in the same story, they said, if you put more resources into high crime neighborhoods that are minority neighborhoods, that's racist. And if you don't respond to increases in crime by putting more police into high crime neighborhoods, that's racist too. So it was tails you lose, heads you lose. But look, it got them in the paper. So it met the first criteria of academic research. So the Wall Street Journal had a long, and I thought, kind of not very satisfying story about how tech giants are spending a lot of money on AI and a little bit of it is overhyped. Sultan, was there something in that story I missed? Because it sort of looked like it was warmed over. It was very warmed over. I would say you've summarized everything anyone needs to know about that article. There was nothing interesting. I think the one kind of thing that I would make sure that gets called out is that, you know, even though we're at a certain point in the market and all this other stuff, we are seeing the results of billions of dollars of research that hasn't turned into a lot. So I'm so shocked to hear yeah. that, right? And the usability of so much of this technology is still highly suspect. In fact, I would argue as someone who's been in AI for 30 years, most of what they're talking about doesn't count as AI, even remotely. Yeah. And so it's a lot of research money. And so they're certainly trying to frame it in a certain way. But like, I mean, Yes, we've spent billions of dollars on this, but I might also say we've spent billions of dollars investing in new crypto companies, and that hasn't exactly turned out the way anyone expected either. And there is stuff that AI does well, yeah. don't you think? I mean, yeah. they, uh, oh, I mean, image processing is a great example. If the Wall Street Journal had wanted to write a story about something interesting that talked about American innovation and really valuable activity that's happened, look at how we've been able to scale up AI-based image processing last few decades to the point where we have self, some degree of self-driving cars, even if you're just talking about the safety systems and not the robot overlords, as Mr. Musk would talk about. But we have this moment where image processing has done a tremendous amount, and we're seeing its application in a variety of areas, from healthcare to automotive to satellite surveillance of our adversaries. There's a lot of great work there. And if they really wanted to talk about places where that investment has actually done something useful instead of just kind of bemoaning, oh, we might not get our share price returns for the next couple of quarters, I'm shocked, by the way, to hear that. You know, talk about something useful. Yeah. Uh, look, face recognition is another place, which, again, nobody wants to talk about, but yeah. it has gotten much. It's increased probably by two orders of magnitude in 10 years uh, in its effectiveness. All right. So just continuing our Debbie Downer discussion of technology, crypto crash is getting worse and worse, it feels like. It feels like there's a knock-on collapse every week now. Well, yeah, I mean, let's kind of do a bit of a reset, right? Obviously, so much of the crypto universe is based on the prices of these non-currencies, Bitcoin, Ethereum, etc. And so many of the organizations and three arrows, it was a hedge fund that falls firmly in this category. They just went into liquidation. But it's basically because they took the perceived value of their balance sheet and levered against it. And now they have to service that debt. Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden, they thought it was worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Instead, it's worth tens of billions of dollars. Well, guess what? All of a sudden, if your balance sheet is messed up like that, it's tough for you to service debt. And they're dealing with the cold, hard facts that they put all their eggs in one basket and all those chickens are coming home to roost. This is not the first one of these we're going to see, and it absolutely will not be the last one. This is a big piece of the crypto middle market, and it's going to, I think we're going to hear a lot more about this. Now, the great thing is this will purge a lot of the bad behavior from the system and we'll start to see things move forward. In fact, if anything, this is going to reiterate the push that we're seeing from the SEC, you know, my former shop at FDIC and OCC and others, to try to shoehorn crypto into the existing regulatory regime versus waiting for, you know, some legislative path that has 
about as much chance to get through as Stuart or I do for having Fabio's hair. So, you know, they, uh, and Nate, I just can't see. So hey, know. you know, with, with, <laughs> with, with a sufficiently sharp razor, I'm sure I could have it. <laughs> right. But I mean, we're in a spot where the entire crypto market is having to come to terms with a new reality. And that reality is you cannot lever against something that doesn't have a lot of value. And that's, that, that is that volatile. Uh, yeah. 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 And it's, I mean, the volatility is fine within the public markets. We've figured out how to navigate that. We've put lots of controls over the last century in. And, you know, even more recently, those who remember the flash crash, more controls got put in when that occurred, right? The fact is, is all of the crypto systems are basically real time. They have no regulatory structure. And the vast majority of organizations don't even have a, like an actual risk management infrastructure in place, like you would see in a broker or a bank or anything like that, because there's no regulatory regime. There is going to have to be some movement there. The question is, will the Biden administration move in anything other than enforcement actions, which is kind of what they're doing right now? And the answer is probably not. So well, that's, I, that's cheap and easy, right? And yeah, you can yeah. then get settled. But well, I hear I, that distant trumpet is Brussels to the rescue. Right? <laughs> Nate, <laughs> is, is, As is, usual. is the EU going to – exactly. Well, I, well, Define rescue. Well, when you say Brussels, I was having a conversation this morning. Maybe Basel is the solution. And so it's like, you know, which European B word is going to actually come in and solve this? And when you're looking to any European entity to move more quickly than the United States, you know the situation is probably bad. It's desperate. And Nate, what are the Europeans proposing to do? So they're taking a series of steps requiring companies to register, abide by the oversight and regulatory regime they're setting up. And they've got some transparency requirements that are in part related to the energy consumption of crypto. So these companies would have to disclose energy use so that people can make informed decisions, I guess, about investing in companies or in coins that are essentially destroying the planet. And so to me, it doesn't feel like, and I'd be interested in Sultan opinion in this, it doesn't feel like the kind of regulatory regime that's going to put this stuff out of business or significantly devalue it, other than the fact that it's regulation and a lot of the most enthusiastic investors in crypto are people who are just you know inherently anti-regulation. And so any regulation is bad regulation. So I think in that respect, it could have some impact on value. But you know it seems that what Europe is trying to do is largely weed out the, some of the worst actors and if you're a better actor, you can come in, you can get registered, you can behave properly, and that gives you the right to operate across the European Union then. Yeah. Now, Nate, I think you've summarized it incredibly well. And Stuart, get your smelling salts out. I actually think this is good. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm feeling fake. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's, uh, it's terrifying, right, uh, for me to say something like that. But the fact is, is it is kind of just nipping at that kind of three or four standard deviation of bad on one extreme. And it's very subtle. It's very lightweight compared to what I think a lot of people in the huh. industry are going for. So I would actually say, again, this is not terrible. I wouldn't say we should use it as a model on this side of the pond, but it's not too bad. And here's a great example. A comparable system in the United States would be to require you know, a certain amount of activity to fall inside of the existing broker-dealer infrastructure. So it's no different than signing up for a brokerage account. That's one of the huh. proposals floating out there. I can't yeah. I can't imagine too many people in the New York crypto community getting too upset about it because it actually makes their lives easier. Because at the end of the day, there are a lot of weird guys running around. And if we can keep a percentage of them out of the system, it actually makes it better for everybody. So I'm actually kind of a fan of this kind of put a subtle gate on the front end of the system. 
okay. know, one of the questions but, Sultan had at the outset was whether they could act faster than the Biden administration. I think the jury is still out on that because <laughs> I think best case scenario here is the end of next year, right? 18 months out. And, well, you know, we've seen other things. We'll yeah. I mean, that's about the time we'll see action from the Biden administration. So, yeah. So it's a I race mean, to the finish line. Right. Well, I mean, I mean, let's be real. You wait another three months, and the Republican president will probably put something in that actually is that actually. I, I think there's some good news here as well from a market perspective because people were raising concerns that instability in the crypto market could have systemic effects, particularly stable coins. You know, we've had the market lose I don't know seventy percent of its value. We've had the Luna stable coin collapse. And the effects on the broader financial system have been very limited. And that's, I think, pretty good news and suggests that this kind of lightweight regulation to try to keep some kind of circuit breakers in there is probably a, a sensible way to go. Yeah, well, right. I think this goes down the rabbit hole more of us defining stable coins, because I would argue that those things were not actually stable coins because they were not stable. <laughs> but, that's a, but no, I think well, I think, people believe they were stable. Coins. Yeah, they were yeah. algorithmically stable. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I, and I know people who believe I own a bridge and I'm willing to sell it to them. But we are in an interesting moment, right? Because crypto actually fell by less than overall GDP market loss. I know people, it's like the big heavy story, but it, it's lost 50%. Markets lost 70%, right? So there's a gap there. And it, and it does show that there is some degree of adult supervision self-organizing inside of the crypto space. Now, that is not scalable. And I think it comes back to you know some degree of lightweight regulation is there. But I don't think the head of the SEC, Gary Gensler, and certain other people in the US administration just solving things by enforcement actions is going to work. You know, Telling people they're speeding but refusing to put up the speed limit sign is going to be problematic long term. Okay, let's do three stories that are updates from stories we've covered in the past. Say issued some regulations for cybersecurity in pipelines, and they were bemoaned as too harsh. But when you go back to figure out what it was that was too harsh about them, you discover that they were secret regulations and the requirements that people had to meet, which they're upset about, were never made public. And now... TSA, in response to all the criticism, has made secret changes to the secret standards, and that's all we know, more or less. So I guess that means if you keep it secret, you don't have to apologize when you change it. The Uber prosecution of their CISO, Joe Sullivan, is still on track, but the prosecutors, kind of remarkably, after almost two years of preparation for trial, decided to add to the obstruction of justice charges three wire fraud charges, and the judge has said, yes, they can do that if they want to. The theory of this is that by hearing some people who were kind of half in the bug bounty and half in the extortion side of the, the aisle, firmly into bug bounty and changing the bug bounty system so that they could pay them a lot of money, that because... Sullivan did that, he was not just obstructing an FTC investigation, but was defrauding all of the drivers and the customers of Uber who wouldn't find out that their data had been compromised. I think the idea that not disclosing when the authorities think you should, that you've had a data breach and that that is wire fraud is really going to be a problem for the FBI, which wants cooperation from people who are facing data breaches, because then you know that if the Justice Department ever asks the FBI guys that you brought in to give the advice, say, did they decide not to disclose that? If the FBI thinks it might be criminal to fail to disclose that, they're going to be 
turning on you faster than you can count it one. So it really raises questions, I think, for general counsels. Do we really want the FBI in or do we just want to keep them at, hand, at arm's length and give them just enough information so that they don't get mad at us. That's my guess about where this comes out, but we'll see. The trial hasn't occurred. Maybe uh, it it, uh, will end in something less than a jail term for a CISO. But if it does, I think a lot of people are going to say, gee, that's not what I want for my future. And then finally, we did that story about Google having sent something like 70% of all the Republic junk mail to junk and only 10% of the Democrat junk mail to junk, even though Hotmail had nothing like that disparity. I said, I thought that was really going to hurt Google. And boy, it is hurting them more than I expected, probably because Republicans have been sure that there's Silicon Valley discrimination against Republicans, but never had a smoking gun. And this feels like a smoking gun. So the Republican Party has charged that they lost $2 billion in donations because of this. Several relatively moderate Senate Republicans have introduced legislation forcing a bunch of transparency on um, spam treatment of fundraising emails. Google itself has said, oh, 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 we didn't mean it, and it wasn't intentional, and we've got a new way of doing this so that it will never happen again. And so they're trying to get people to agree that they can implement this new program that will provide more transparency and less likelihood of jiggered spam assignments. They're going to pay a price for this because there's a whole bunch of stuff on the Hill that the tech industry wants to kill, such as the platform antitrust rules. And nobody is going to defend Google except Google, and even Google is running for cover. So we're going to see something happen. Whether it's legislative, I don't know, but worth watching. Okay, Nate, Maury, Sultan, thanks a lot for joining us. This is terrific. If you're listening to this and want to send us comments, cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. I want to thank Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 415 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you commercial-free by Steptoe & Johnson. 